Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my laying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That video is compliments of our youth along with Sam, our student ministries director. And there's something beautiful about God's word and being able to hear it come from the mouths of our students. Um, We've been in a series, if you don't know who I am, I'm Katie Smith. And usually when I go and speak somewhere, I have to introduce myself. It's great and a pleasure to be at my own home church while Craig is on vacation and Sam and I are going to do some back-to-back preaching up here. And we'll close one series and start a new series. And so for the last six months, we've been looking at Psalms 139. And we're going to finish that today, looking at the last couple verses. And as we do that, I want to tell you about a dinner that I had recently with some friends. I don't know what your dinners look like when you go out to eat, but this particular dinner, we were sitting around the table. There was about eight of us, and we believed we were the experts that evening. We believed that as we talked about current events, and there are a lot of current events going on, we knew what was wrong with the world. We sat in in our expertise. Have you ever had one of these conversations? Maybe at home with friends. We sat in our expertise and we identified what the problems were and how to solve them. And through the course of this dinner, the question was asked, well, what do you think the solution is on this one? It doesn't really matter what the topic was. What's important is the question. What do you think the solution is on this one? And my friend sitting next to me, who um, everyone around that table I have respect for, my friend sitting next to me who I have respect for, took her hands after a thoughtful pause to that question. She looked at her hands and she put them on the table in front of her and she said, unclench. Okay, the question, what is the solution to this problem, can never be as simple as one word. And so many of us were like, what? She's like, unclench. Unclenched. She said, the problem is that we hold on too tightly and we have to unclench our hands. That was her summary to all of the world's problems. We just have to unclench. 
So I've been thinking about my hands recently. Notice your hands. Just take a look at them. I'm wondering right now if they're relaxed, if they're open. Wondering if they're clean. Are they clean? I'm wondering if they're a little tense, if they're clenched at all. And as you think about your hands, I did a little bit of research this week on hands. I don't know if you know this, but we have 27 bones in our hands, 17 muscles. What I didn't know is that there's no muscles in our fingers. We have three main verbs, and then, of course, we're complex humans, so it's way more complex than just the muscles and and all that stuff. But researchers have identified that we have two kinds of grips, all of those muscles and nerves. The first type of grip is the power grip. It's the grip where you grab something heavy and you wrap your fingers and you wrap your thumbs around it and you're strong with it. The second grip is called a precision grip, where you take your index finger and your thumb, it's usually for more delicate work, to pick something up that's a little bit lighter. Now what's even more amazing than the power grip and the precision grip is as infants, before we're even born, we have a grip reflex. I'm certain you have seen this if you've been around an infant at any time. But notice, the minute that the palm is touched, it's called the palmar grasp, that the infant grasps on to fingers. This was the case with my children. It was likely the case with your children. In fact, there's been studies where they gave infants a bar to grab onto, and they held the bar up to see how strong and how long the infant could hold on. And actually, let's do, we have any infants in the room today? I need a volunteer. Okay, bring her up. No. Um, So this idea that this grip is strong. So even before we're born, we're developing this grip instinct. Now, researchers say this infant grip disappears around five months of age. But I want to suggest to you that long after five months, we still have that instinct to grab on. We still have that instinct to to have a reflex that wants to be tight-fisted. Sometimes we cling to relationships. Sometimes we clutch onto our possessions. Sometimes we try to control our future or control the future of our children and our grandchildren. And sometimes we are in a posture of tight-fistedness rather than open hands. We find an example of this posture of tight-fistedness in Deuteronomy 15, You'll see it on the screen behind me. It's on your sermon notes. But as you look at Deuteronomy 15, we know that this is the fifth book of the Bible. And within the context of Deuteronomy, Moses is teaching the Israelites what it means to live out their all for God and what it looks like to live in obedience. And so when we get to chapter 15, Moses is instructing the Israelites to be open-handed, to freely give to the poor. It reads... If anyone is poor among you, your fellow Israelites, in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and in need. Notice the hands of the Israelites. 
Notice how Moses describes their hands. He says their hands are tight-fisted, not open. He says that they're clenched to their money and their possessions. One translation even says they had a tight grip on their purse. So this idea of being tight-fisted, Moses takes this comparison of tight fists to open hands, and he uses it as a description to say that's what it means to be generous. In fact, in the Hebrew, the, the visual picture that comes with the word for generous is open hand. Moses warns and rebukes the Israelites about their tendency, perhaps even their habit, of being in a posture of tight fists. He warns them and he even commands them to no longer have closed hands. What's the solution to this problem? Moses could have said, unclench. Be open-handed, he said. Lend freely, give ungrudgingly, be generous. The Israelites challenge me to ask myself, how open are my hands? The same thing happens when we get to the end of Psalm 139. David challenges me to ask myself, how open are my hands? Because you see, David is in a different posture than the Israelites. David isn't in a tight-fisted posture. He isn't, he isn't clenching on. He isn't protecting himself. If he were, the end of Psalm 139 would, would read something like this. Take me, Lord. I know you know me but I just want you to know I'm trying to protect myself. And I know when you look, you're going to find something, but I'm hiding the big stuff, so don't look too close. And as I lead myself, it's okay if you watch me. That's not how the end of Psalm 139 ends. David wasn't holding on tightly. He seemed a little bit more relaxed. His spirit seemed relaxed. His spirit seemed opened. His hands seemed opened. He seemed to be in a posture of open hands. On my bookshelf, I have a book written by Henry Nowen, and it's an older book, and it's called With Open Hands. It happens to be on the topic of prayer. And when you look and read through Henry Nowen's book on prayer, he says this, to pray means to open your hands before God. That's his definition of prayer. Open your hands before God, and Nowen continues to say, slowly relaxing the tension which squeezes your hands together. Any tension in your hands? How are they right now? Relaxed? A little clenched? Listen to Psalm 139. You'll see the slide behind me. Listen for David's tone of humility. Listen for his mindset of surrender. Listen to his attitude of openness. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my ways my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You'll notice on the slide behind me a picture of David. You notice that David is praying. You can almost picture him if he were, after a long day of ruling the kingdom, walking that outside corridor, and he comes to the corner and he just kneels and decides to reflect on the day. That picture shows him looking up to heaven 
It shows his hands open. And as he's reflecting on God's character, reflecting on how God is all present, you hear David almost say, you know where I am. Where can I flee from you? As he reflects on God being all-knowing, you hear him say, you know when I sit and when I lie down. When he reflects on God's creative power, you hear him say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And as he gets to the end of Psalms 139, he slowly relaxes his hands, and the only words that come to his mouth are verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. What we can learn from David's prayer here in the last two verses is first this. David's open hands invited humility. With David's open hands, there comes the sense of humility. He invites humility. Look at the active verbs that he uses. In fact, you can take your sermon notes and circle these verbs. Search me, know me, test me, lead me. Those are active verbs that require vulnerability. And by using those words, David is saying, God is the one who's actively working in me. God is the one who's searching me and knowing me. God is the one who's testing me. And I'm opening myself up, being vulnerable before him and allowing him to show me and to lead me. You see, at this point... David knew what his life was like. He knew that he needed to be scrutinized. He knew that he needed to be vulnerable. The second thing that we learn from David's prayer along with vulnerability is accountability. David's open hands invites accountability. And we see this specifically in verse 24 where it says, see if there's be any offensive way in me. The very fact that he even said that suggests there might be something wrong in him, in us. He says, you know, see if there's any grievous way. See if there's any wicked way. See what's there. Point out to me what makes you sad in the things that I'm doing. This is the accountability that David wants to be held to. And as he knows his track record, as he knows that he's prone to sin, he wants God to hold him accountable. I don't know about you, but it's difficult to be vulnerable and be held accountable with closed hands. In fact, I would suggest it's almost impossible to be vulnerable and be held accountable with our hands closed. David challenges me to look at my hands and say, how open are my hands? So from the Israelites to David, I'm going to take you to the New Testament and show you another example. I want to look this time at an example of a parable in Luke 18. And in Luke 18, we're going to meet an individual who has open hands, and we're going to meet an individual who has closed hands. And as you turn to and look at the Luke 18 passage that will be on the slide, just a word about parables. Rabbis would use parables as a teaching method. And in fact, Jesus, a third of all of his teaching includes parables. And a parable is simply a story 
that is used using common objects or common individuals to not only make a point, okay, this is the important part of a point, the purpose of a parable was to change someone's behavior. It was to call forth a change and a response. And every parable has three things. It'll have an audience, it'll have characters or objects that are being used in it, and then it'll have a point of reference. And so in Luke 18, what we find, this is the parable of the persistent widow, or you might know it as the parable of the unjust judge, we find that the audience is the disciples. And the characters are a widow and a judge. And the point of reference, this is what you want to pay attention to in the parable, is the interaction that happens between the judge and the widow. So look with me, if you would, at Luke 18, verses 2 to 5. Jesus said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time the judge refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't bother me anymore or attack me. So in this parable, let's look first at the widow. What do we learn about the widow? Well, by definition of being a widow, she's without a husband. We also learn that she has a need. She, said, she says to the judge, grant me justice against my adversary. Something is being done to me. Some wrong is being done to me. I'm being taken advantage of. And hear my request, judge. We also learn that she doesn't just ask once or twice, but she repeatedly comes to the judge. Now, unfortunately, or maybe it's not unfortunately, we don't know exactly what the specifics are related to this injustice that's being done. Most theologians believe it relates to the ownership of land and property because culturally in that day, women couldn't own anything. And so her husband would have owned the land. And if he was now no longer with her, then the question is who owned the land? And culturally, it would have gone to the oldest male relative. So maybe that's what it was about. Maybe it was about something else. But what we know is she's in need, and she comes before the judge and asks for help. Now, upon hearing this story, the disciples' ears would have perked up. They would have immediately picked up on the societal position of the woman. First of all, she was a woman. That meant, culturally, she didn't have really any rights. She wasn't very well respected. Second, she was a widow. One commentator by the name of Convert says, most widows were defenseless, poor, vulnerable, and targets of oppression and fraud. So odds were against her. And even more shocking was to see a woman come before a judge. Culturally, women were not allowed to come before a judge. That was male domain. It was the responsibility of a man to bring the widow's request to the judge. But we don't see any man doing that. So against all odds, she courageously stands up, marches to the judge, and repeatedly makes her request. The model that we see from the widow is one of persistence. The widow did not give up. She was determined 
and committed. And she kept coming to the judge, I almost picture this, with open hands with her request. Grant me justice. Now, if you're asking, why did Jesus even share this parable with the disciples? All we have to do is go back to verse 1 in chapter 18. And Luke actually tells us, he says, Jesus told the disciples this parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. So Jesus is telling this parable, according to Luke, to the disciples to teach them about persistence in prayer, to teach them that the example of this widow of not giving up by bringing requests to the judge is similar to our persistence in prayer. Not giving up in praying, not giving up in bringing open hands before God. If we go with Henry Nouwen's definition, that prayer is open hands before God. And Jesus called the disciples to this continuous persistence, prayer. I'd even use the word generous. Generous in the sense that it's overflowing, that that it's happening continuously. And that's the first point that I want to pull from this parable, that our open hands leads to generous prayer, that our open hands leads to generous prayer. But our hands also lead, when they're open, to something else. And we see this with the unjust judge. So let's look at the judge for a second. What do we know about him? Well, he's unjust, he's corrupt, he's evil. Twice in the passage it says that he neither feared God nor cared what people thought. The second thing we know about the judge is that his initial response was what to the widow? Ignored her request, maybe even flat out refused it, sent her away, didn't want to listen. You know, I'm not going to listen, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, but eventually... He gives in. Because why? Because he's annoyed, because he's bothered. There's actually a little bit of humor in the Greek here that we can't see in the English. Jesus uses a boxing terminology. um, And this idea of being attacked, that the judge says, is actually getting a black eye. Now, can you just see this widow coming up and just giving a right hook to get this black eye? So that's the comical nature. And so as the disciples were listening to this, as they were probably even laughing at the boxing analogy, they would have been very shocked by a couple of things. First, they would have been shocked by the behavior of the judge. Culturally, judges were held to a high standard to do what was right. So this was shocking that this judge wasn't doing what was right. Secondly, and even more importantly, regardless of the fact that he was a judge, culturally there was a mandate to care for the widow. It was built upon the Old Testament, and we see even Isaiah talk about it when Isaiah says, learn to do what is right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. What did our fine judge do? Well, by reputation and even self-confession, he didn't care about doing what was right. He didn't care about God and God's law. He didn't care about seeking justice. He didn't even care about defending the case of the widow. Sure, the judge eventually gave in, but even that was out of a annoyance, a selfishness, a I'm being bothered by the persistence of this widow. I just want her to go away. So even though there's justice there, you've got to say, what kind of justice is that? 
And Jesus used this example with the disciples to teach them that they are to extend open hands of justice to those that are around. The judge had closed hands. He clenched his hands out of selfishness and corruption. And quite frankly, closed hands leads to oppression. Jesus called the disciples to be generous in their acts of justice. And that's the second observation out of this this parable, is that open hands leads to generous justice. Not just generous prayer, but generous justice. Now, the third point is a little bit harder to find. And we find it in the verses that are following the proverb, uh, or I'm sorry, the parable, where Jesus is talking a little bit here about why he is telling this parable to the disciples. So Jesus says in verse 6, And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Okay, do you remember what the unjust judge said? The unjust judge said, Even though I don't fear God, even though I don't care what people think, because she's bothering me, I'm going to give her justice. That's what the unjust judge says. And Jesus says, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice quickly. So the third point from this parable is that our generous God extends open hands to his people. Our generous God extends open hands to his people. Listen to what Jesus says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? It's a rhetorical question. Yes. Will he keep putting them off? Rhetorical question. No. God will bring justice and he will see that they get it quickly. He will see that they get it quickly. Now, in the rabbis, when they used parables, they had a way of using a parable for an argument, and they would make an argument from the lesser to the greater. So in this parable, we see that argument, the lesser is the unjust judge, and the greater is the just God. So Jesus is making this comparison out of this parable, and he's saying, look here, the unjust judge compared to a just God. Look here, an unjust judge who doesn't care about people, and then there's a just God who graciously cares for people. And in case you didn't get the argument yet, the unjust judge who delays in giving justice, here's a just God who cares about you and is quick to bring justice. Jesus sets God the Father side by side with the unjust judge. He doesn't say that God is like the judge. He says God is better than the judge. God has open hands, and God's open hands will be extended with justice because all of his ways are just. And because he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he won't delay in that justice. So out of this parable, I have to ask myself, how open are my hands? Even for you, how open are your hands? You see, when our hands are closed, our prayers are limited, our justice is held back, 
and we can't receive God's good gifts. So as you think about how open your hands are this morning, do you wish to be a little bit more like the widow, persistent in your prayer life? Perhaps you want to be dedicated like David to opening your hands. Some of us, myself included, can listen too much to the noise of my fears and my desires that keep me from completely opening my hands in prayers. Don't get me wrong, I might be praying, but I'm, I'm not totally surrendered. I'm, I'm holding something back. I'm not completely letting go. Open hands leads to generous prayer. And this morning, maybe you find yourself a little bit like the judge in the parable, a little bit like the Israelites holding on too tightly. Some of us have held back in being generous. I had to laugh on my way here and knowing what I was going to talk about this morning because on my way here in Maple Grove, I passed somebody who was homeless who was asking for some money. And then I got here and I saw the cross stuff and I thought, oh, I forgot to bring stuff. And, and in both of my minds, uh, situations, you know, that's within like three miles of each other this happens. I'm like, somebody else will take care of it. Somebody else will come along. So sometimes we're holding back and we're thinking somebody else will do it. Sometimes God whispers in our ear, maybe we should give a little bit more, but we think maybe we won't have enough. Many of us have just become complacent and comfortable, and, and open hands leads to generous justice. And finally, our generous God. If you walk away with nothing else this morning, this picture of our generous God with open hands being extended to you. Some of you have never thought of God as being generous, as having open hands. Maybe you grew up with an image of him being mean, judged, just waiting and watching for something that you would do wrong and then you'd get punished. This morning, if that's you, be encouraged. God is a good, good father. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and his hands are wide open. His arms are there waiting for you to come. So wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, wherever you, if you've been on it for a long time, for some time, if you're just beginning it, we all have room to grow this morning. It's in asking ourselves how open are our hands. This morning, please take the opportunity to open your hands a little bit more. As I pray, if you'd be willing to just sort of put your hands on your lap, palms up, and open. Lord, we thank you for how you are good. You are good in being always faithful. You're good in being always true, being good in all the ways that we can count on you. And it's really hard sometimes to open our hands. We want to protect ourselves. We, wanna, we don't want to be vulnerable. But Lord, help us give our hearts to you completely. Help us give our hands to you completely. For we want to be a people that live by your grace and for your glory. We pray this in your generous name. And everyone said, amen.